Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Gail Green will join us to discuss immeasurable outcomes. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Welcome back to the Grok's Science Show. Well, in the age of technological innovations, how have the humanities and humanity education been treated? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Gail Green. Dr. Green is Professor Emerita at Scripps College. She's published numerous books on Shakespeare and feminist criticism and has authored studies of women writers and biography and two memoirs. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, The Nation, The American Prospect, dozens of academic journals, and she has penned the new book, Immeasurable Outcomes, Teaching Shakespeare in the Age of the Algorithm. Dr. Green, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. Good to be here. It is certainly a pleasure, certainly a great book that you've put together here, Immeasurable Outcomes, in which you really talk about how the humanities are faring now, and so here's why I decided to put the book together. Right. Well, fear. <laughs> Alarm. Um, I was coming up to the end of my teaching career, and I suddenly became aware that the humanities were being trashed right, left, and center by the national media, the national conversation. And we were seeing the results at even at Claremont College, the Claremont Colleges, Scripps College is where I taught, very supportive of the liberal arts, pretty posh, pretty selective. But even there, kids were fleeing the humanities because they thought they weren't good job prospects and moving to STEM and moving to more professionally oriented majors. And it was really alarming to see this trend with my life's work essentially kind of go down the drain. So I set out to ask what hit us, you know, what's happened? Because when I started out in school, when I graduated in the mid-60s, the humanities, the liberal arts were the centerpiece, were the cornerstone of a terrific educational system that was the envy and still is the envy of the world. And the reason we were the envy of the world is we had this broad education. We educated people. Engineers came out knowing about something besides engineering. They knew something about the past, about art, about other human beings, you know, and that's what made us great. I mean, original, creative, I mean, there's no question but that we were and have been and are now losing rankings, I'm sorry to say, but the envy of the world. I mean, the best colleges, the best universities are mostly in the United States. It seemed to me we were killing the goose that laid the golden egg. I mean, this was based on the liberal arts, broad, smattering general education, and we were cutting that off for standardized technical, overly technical education. And that really was very suicidal. So I started to ask what hit us and why, and then to ask, well, what do we offer? What do my classes actually contribute to the betterment of the world? And then, of course, how to get this across. How do you think this push started? And how do you think that the humanities have come to it in recent times? 
it's very sad. I mean, actually, it took me this whole exploration took me to the K-12 system, which I hadn't really given any thought to since I didn't in K-12. And it seems that this, you know, there's something called reform, which is actually kind of deform. No Child Left Behind, Race to the Top, Common Core, which have reduced teaching to testing and have cut out literature, history, the arts, because they don't get tested. So you cut out the old man in the sea to teach something like the federal views of environment, energy, and transportation management, you know, really deadly dull informational analytical text because imaginative literature is no longer useful. So what happens is kids get to college with this kind of background. 90% of our students come from the public schools and they never seen a liberal arts. They don't know what a liberal arts is. They think it's like liberal means left wing and arts means artsy fartsy. So they don't enroll in our classes. Enrollments plummet. Administrators look and say, hey, consumer demand. We got to go with consumer demand. And the kids are voting with their feet. So, you know, we'll cut these programs. We'll cut these departments. We'll close the college. And so this downward spiral has set in. And it's exacerbated by all these voices in the media, which are the media interviews business people. I mean, they're not interested in teachers. They don't trust teachers because teachers don't make a lot of money and business people do. <laughs> and they trust rich people, money talks. So the voices you hear in the national media and the national conversation are not educators. They're business people. They're people who have no experience of education, but by God, they have the fix, you know, the, the, the magic bullet that's going to fix education. So people hear these voices, and they really drown out. I mean, there are just no teachers that are interviewed. I mean, and, you know, there are studies that show this. For every single teacher's voice in the media, you've got like 50 business people. I could give you these study references to these studies. And so people are really confused about what matters in education. I mean, what you're aiming for. And you've got this kind of gutted, hollowed-out system that's going for a job. Tell me what I need to know to get an A so that I can get a degree, so that I can get a job. Education has been transformed, you know, instrumental. It's not about education anymore. It's about what can I get with it. And it's, there's so many things that have made this happen. Just kind of rush through a couple of them. But K-12 has been turned into, has been opened as a market because treating Teaching as testing has been really lucrative to testing companies, assessment companies, entire new industries have, have sprung into existence. Other people have written about this, and I, I wanted to write about it, but it's not my story. And so I refer you to people like Diane Ravitch and Jennifer Berkshire and called Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. They're wonderful. There's wonderful analysis of the privatization of K-12. Well, obviously, it affects higher education. It can't possibly not affect us. I mean, that's where we get our students, and they're not interested in the liberal arts anymore. And administrators, of course, are eager to cut wherever they can. So that's part of what's gotten us into this hole. It has become a very utilitarian, at least workmanlike view of education. Mm -hmm. 
by and large, where this has come into play and where the fights oftentimes are in the public schools, pressure for outcomes-based measures now is becoming a stratification of where you have individuals, more affluent private schools that are able to be afforded the liberal arts education that uh, once was available to everybody and not so much now in the public schools. Is that something that you've seen? Oh, absolutely. And that's really tragic because that, you know, just feeds into this two-tiered society we're already getting, which is one kind of education for the rich people who can afford, you know, places like Scripps where I taught, and then all the others. And right, I mean, the pandemic has also, of course, thrown a huge wrench into everything, exacerbated all the worst things in places like community colleges and regional colleges and historically black colleges and universities. You know, they do really, really good, important education. They manage to reach people and turn out human beings. And they're, they're reeling. They're just suffering from this because their students are the, are the essential workers, are the ones who've been hardest hit by the pandemic. And, of course, all the funding goes to Harvard and Yale and the Ivy League. And that's where all the big money makes money. And they're fine. I mean, their applications are, you know, through the roof. But these other schools, the schools that do the real grunge work of turning out human beings, you know, who know how to think, who know how to read, who care about something other than raking off the big bucks, they're suffering. And so the society is becoming more and more two-tiered, and it's really disastrous because the last thing we need is more division in this in this country. Indeed. They were given this point that there was this lack of liberal arts education, and especially in the uh, public schools, the community schools, and they made the offhanded comment is, well, they don't need to know Shakespeare. And that's yeah. sort of a dismissive yeah. attitude that you, you sort of find in, in these situations, right, from those making the policies. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then, as I say, it just becomes a downward spiral. And that's so classist condescending. You know, where do you think Shakespeare came from? I mean, he came from those classes. You don't know what's in those classes, you know, what's in those, the people that you've decided not to educate, who are disposable. This society is now turning out a lot of disposables that you turn your back on. That's where talent, creativity, you don't know what's there. So you're you're shutting off your own pipeline to creativity and originality and assuming it's going to come from Harvard or Yale. Well, it may well not. Indeed. Dug ourselves into this bit of a mess with focus on these outcome-based measures. Is there a way out? Do you see this? We've gone too far down this particular road. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I there are things that can be done, and but it, it, it involves kind of keeping your eye on what's important in education and allocating resources to teaching conditions. And that means small classes, human contact. People need people. People learn from people. People especially need students. Especially need people now, since they've been so cut off during the during the pandemic. They need mentors. They need professors who can take an interest in them. Well, professors can take an interest in students when professors themselves are supported, when they have good conditions, not when they're adjuncts, you know, flying from one job to another, teaching like five courses a semester. That it doesn't happen that way. So you have to support your educators. You have to keep classes small. And this is where good education occurs, where kids come out. First of all, they're employable. They're much more employable than we've been told. I mean, liberal arts graduates, what can you do with a liberal arts degree? Anything is the answer. Absolutely anything. I mean, it may take you longer. You may not have as direct a route as if you get a degree in accounting and become an accountant. 
you may have to go around to find your own way. I have, I should also say in this book, I have tons of voices of students and graduates who tell me about what they've done since they've graduated and the routes they've taken to find something. And also how their reading has helped them get through crises. You know, I wouldn't have survived my son's death if I hadn't had these words from words testimonials like that, that our outcomes are human beings. They're not numbers. They're not data points on a graph. They're not workers day ready, job ready on day one, as Obama said, we should be producing. They are human and they have to live lives and they have to have jobs. They have to be human beings and they have to benefit society and not be a drain on society. And when we treat people as disposables, they of course become drains on society. But the higher the level of education, generally the more productive, the more they have kids who are also productive, they, they know how to read, they vote sensibly, they don't try to vandalize the society. That's what we're trying to produce. We're producing human beings. And I wanted to give human beings their voice in this book. And I wanted to show how it works. So that's why I bring you into a class and say, meet the students. This is, these are the kids. These are what they're like. This is my job. I have to take them from here to there. And we try to learn how to listen to each other, to get along as a society. Oh man, this society don't know how to do that anymore. You know, it's really a saving gesture education. And and, people aren't even interested in it. I mean, it's just not anywhere on the radar screen of elections. And so, I mean, now it is, you know, like free tuition when Biden talks about that. But it's the the lack of interest in education, because education is long term and we're a short term society. We're in it for the get in, get rich, get out kind of kickback, you know. But education takes a while and you can't measure it at graduation day. You have to talk to graduates five years out, ten years out. You have to find out how their lives have turned out. That's how you find out the outcome of education. They're human beings who go out into the world and make it better or make it worse. (laughs) Technology tells us how to live. The humanities really tell us what we live for. Yeah, pretty much. Technology is great. I mean, God, I couldn't live without it. But, you know, kids don't learn from screens. That's a really interesting thing. I mean, they learn from teachers that have gone on Zoom, and that's and they've managed to have a certain amount of success. But it's been hard. I mean, you know, the view since the pandemic of computer teaching is not real high. And there's been a lot of losses. But when you just turn them over to screens, like Bill Gates has planned, you know, personalized learning, it's called, it should be called depersonalized, where you just put them in front of a computer and give them a bunch of prompts and they follow those prompts. That doesn't doesn't work. It just doesn't. And there's a really interesting experiment done with infants trying to teach them Mandarin. And they had three ways. One was audio and one was visual, the screen, and one was a human tutor. And the only ones that learned were from the human tutor. Yeah, because that's who we are. I mean, we are a species that learns from others. We have a long period of vulnerability when we're infants. And we learn to pick up cues from other people to survive. And that's how teaching happens, person to person. And that's why these small classes are so important and good teaching conditions so that teachers can really form bonds with their students, learn who they are, bring out their strengths. 
and point out their weaknesses. That's how education works. It's, it's such a simple thing. It's such a human thing. I think we knew it once and forgot because technology is enormously seductive. And what it can do is just, and now with AI, I'm like, don't let's go there. But it's not a substitute for the real thing, which is person to person brought it up. And in some ways, this is looking at the future and AI is part of that and everything becomes more automated as things become more rote. The capacities of human for creativity and learning from the liberal arts, the things that make our society what they are, you would think come back to the fore is that this is crux of what, what we're all about. We made our life simple enough and now we can concentrate and, on searching for the higher selves, if you will. Well, searching for what you know, makes us human and what's made our world wonderful. I mean, and it's not this app that comes out of some homogenization. It sounds like Muzak to me, the stuff I read from AI, you know, it, it's just kind of hodgepodge from here and there. Okay, so that's what it does. But what humans do, is, you know, the potential for something new. That's what's really exciting about human beings. They, they can come up with amazing things. Just look at this Rube from Stratford, who wrote the complete works of Shakespeare. No algorithm would have predicted that outcome. And the AI, the sort of, you know, feeding back what we already know, that can't do that. I mean, I, I don't think it can create anything new. I don't know. Maybe next year it'll be able to create something new. It's moving fast. But the challenges is that young people face are just enormous right now. I mean, they're coming out of school, and if they're job prepared, they're not going to be prepared to face climate change, huge poverty, you know, refugee populations, overthrow of democracy, authoritarianism. These are problems, you know, that really do require something new. I mean, require original creative thinking. You can't turn that over to a computer. I mean, you can turn aspects of it over to a, to a, a program, I imagine but the whole thing. Yeah, that we're essentially creating cogs in a wheel and not active citizenry mm -hmm. that can shape progress and challenge authority where it needs to be challenged. Right, make judgments. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think judgments, judgment and wisdom, those are really hard things to, de to define, but I think they have something to do with moving from the particular to the general and drawing on the past to extrapolate into the future. Not I really wouldn't trust a, a program to do that. I wouldn't trust most human beings to do it, to tell you the truth. But I mean, that's the kind of thing we need to cultivate in classes. Is like, how do you read? How do you judge? How do you interpret? I mean, we live in a world that's really complicated. We don't need to know brute strength, how to go out there and kill a wolf. But we do need to know how to negotiate human minefields, you know, that are full of other people with agendas that are their own and are not ours and do not serve us well. Reading Shakespeare is absolutely fabulous for this because he shows characters in complicated situations who read badly, who make the wrong, who don't see something, you know, like Macbeth, who's really obtuse to what those witches are saying, or King Lear, who can't hear which of his daughters is telling him the truth, or Othello, who doesn't know when he's being lied to, and therefore they're manipulable, and they're vulnerable, and they die. I mean, this is tragic. I mean, and sometimes it's funny, like Malvolio, he also is, he can't hear. I mean, he just sees what he wants to see, and he, he's man, manipulated, and he's made a fool of. That's funny. But 
we want to know how to <laughs> steer our lives, how to see, how to read, how to interpret. And you cannot do better than literature for that kind of training. You just can't. That's what literature is about, people making mistakes and screwing up their lives. They're kind of nice how-not-to how manuals in a way. <laughs> seems as though the road we've gone down has led to this split in our society where we're not open to new ideas, open to the other side, going to continue to deepen as ignore the liberal arts in this. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And power is consolidated into money. And there are people who are making fortunes from our ignorance, from manipulating us. And it sounds cynical to say, but it's true, the manipulation. There's true investments in human ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> And, and we, we really do have to resist that and educate teachers, professors, people who are concerned with educating the young are in the best position to resist. It's also about humanization and dehumanization. I mean, the dehumanization of technology, it does reduce us to counters, you know, to numbers on a graph. I mean, students, they don't have speaking parts in most of the books I've read on higher education. That's what I wanted to do in this book is give them speaking parts, but maybe we really have to find our voices, what's human in us, and speak out and speak back. And that's humanization as opposed to dehumanization is really important because we live in a world that, I mean, we're all going crazy from the dehumanization. You call up your doctor, you used to call your doctor no more. You get a phone tree and the phone tree sends you through several, and if you're lucky, you may land at a number that, you know, can tell you that you're calling the wrong number and you should call this other number. You know, it's just optimization and it is dehumanization. And I think people are going a little crazy from it. I mean, I think that there's a kind of rage there that we, you can't get angry at the person on the other end of the phone, right? I mean, because they're just, that's not their fault. But I think we don't realize the extent to which dehumanization is sort of encroaching on our lives. And what education is about, or liberal arts education, is about rehumanizing, you know, humanization. The humanities has something to do with humanity and with human human beings. And that's really what my sort of crusade is. Well, it is an admirable crusade. Do you see any bright spots ahead? Or what would you like people to take out of your book, The Miserable Outcomes? Yeah, keep our eyes on what's important about teaching conditions so that we are teaching human beings. Liberal arts colleges do this best, I think. Of course, I'm prejudiced. I taught at one for 40 years, but I really do think we do a good job. And they're the ones that are most vulnerable. You know, everybody says, oh, they cost so much. Well, not exactly. The sticker price is not always the actual price. You've got to find out about that. If you're a parent thinking of where to send your kid, know that they're going to get a much better education where they have small classes and professors who care and check it out. Try to find out if it is affordable. These large state scholars, uh, colleges, universities are doing really, something really good. They're often establishing a smaller college within that it gives a kind of small college experience to students. Sometimes they're called honors college. I don't particularly like that term because it assumes that, I mean, I think they should be available to 
anybody who wants to enroll in one of these colleges. University of Texas, UCLA, University of Washington, University of Michigan, and they're very successful. They require a lot of imagination, a lot of effort. Some faculty member has to come through and take responsibility, so they're not so easy to keep going. But these large state universities, you throw a kid into a class of 500 where they can sleep in the back row or do Facebook or whatever they're doing, that's not serving them well. So there's got to be a way of making it more human. It's terribly important that that policymakers and principals and boards of education know that technology is not a magic bullet, and you shouldn't squander enormous resources on it because some lib salesman has come by and said, we have the techno fix. I mean, there are many, many stories of scandals in K-12 schools that just squandered resources. People seem to have lost and gotten confused by technology and need to keep in mind that education is something that goes on between and among people. People need people, and whatever can be done to bring that about is what needs to happen kind of tall order i don't there's no magic bullet for education there simply isn't there's simply you know understanding better what it is well but i certainly hope everyone will go take a look at the book but just to close i will say that we are talking with dr gail green her book immeasurable outcomes teaching shakespeare in the age of the algorithm dr green thank you so much for your time yeah thank you it's been fun and that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>